Hello and welcome to what I believe is episode 63 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I'm Cricket Lou, your co-host, along with... Matt Larson. Hello, everyone. Great to have you back, Matt. Of course, you're my, my co-host. <laughs> We're always back. Have you you're doing this? Do you have anything to tell me? Anything you I, need to confess? I, I do not. <laughs> I have not been been moonlighting. But we we are uh, we are joined uh, today by uh, a, a very uh, august member of the DNS community and a mutual friend of ours, uh, Casey Dicio, who is uh, an assistant professor of computer science at BYU. Uh, great to have you here, Casey. Yeah, thank you. So glad to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me on, Cricket and Matt. All right. Well, I. We talked a little bit. Uh, we did our uh, traditional 60 seconds of preparation. And uh, and in that time, we decided that we would start with a question, as we often do. And so that means a trip to the mailbag, which I'm afraid is I had to scrape the bottom. But that's what happens when you do podcast episodes at in a regular interval measured in months. <laughs> but we are thankful to Richard Tom, uh, who wrote us. Uh, asking the subject is next, Mr. DNS podcast question mark. And Richard, if you're listening, and we hope you are, you, it was your email that shamed us into <laughs> producing this episode. Uh, and so he says, I really enjoy listening to the podcast. Thank you for that. Per some of the media, there were DNS issues at Akamai that caused outages to some customers. Also, Slack recently blamed a partial customer outage on a DNS issue too. Regards, Rich. So. I guess he's asking asking us to comment on those. And of course, the thing that he doesn't mention is the huge Facebook outage that really made, it was the, the top news of the day, whatever day it was that that happened. Did we did we receive his email before the Facebook outage happened? Well, he, he emailed on October 19th. Hmm, that's not no. before the Facebook outage. I don't think. I don't think so. Who can, no, who no. can use the internet fastest? <laughs> I remember because when the Facebook outage happened, I was at Disneyland. Oh, and, and October our, 4th. Yeah, our, our PR and AR manager kept bugging me about it. Do you know anything about this? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm in line. <laughs> I'm about to ride, I, about I, to ride I Splash Mountain. Yeah, I, we actually got stuck on Splash Mountain, believe it or not. They had to walk us off the ride. Oh. We had to. We had uh, the. What do they call people who work at Disneyland? Hosts? Cast members. Cast members. Yes. So the cast members came and got us out of the boats just before the big drop at the end and walked us out the back way. And, and all because Facebook was down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Facebook goes down. Splash Mountain goes down. Yeah. As the resistance went down. Uh, I actually found out about the Facebook outage uh, through my geek channels. I had no idea it was. It was down otherwise because uh, I'm not, I'm not such a social media uh, uh, person. So I didn't find out uh, from from anyone other than my geek friends that in the DNS community. Yeah, yeah, and, and that one was that one was interesting. I think because um, as with a lot of these outages, the the first reaction that many people had was, oh, it seems to be DNS, uh, because. I think fairly easy for folks to check and see whether they can get responses from Facebook's DNS servers. You can just fire up a query tool and and uh, send some queries to the list of Facebook.com DNS servers. And if you don't get a response back, you think, oh, it must be DNS, right? But in this case, it really wasn't DNS. And I think Casey, you had you had a better idea uh, than I did about the the original cause of, of the outage. 
Yeah, I mean, with, with Facebook, there was certainly DNS involved, um, though, you know, and I, I, I only have an outsider's perspective. And, and with regard to some of the uh, information that was uh, disseminated about this, but but in general, these sort of this idea of, of health checks that DNS servers have, you know, that will regularly check, hey, am I accessible? Am I accessible? Um, and, and so forth. And and Facebook's DNS servers um, were performing their health checks to uh, some of the data centers. And at at some point or other, there was a problem um, at the data center, as far as I understand it that made it so that these health checks would fail. And so the DNS servers in turn said, oh, I'm not accessible because I can't, you know, I'm not getting a, a, um, a, success, a successful response from the data center. So therefore um, I should withdraw my route. And so prefixes for Facebook were withdrawn, which I understand were not just the DNS prefixes, but uh, other prefixes uh, for Facebook. And so there was no way to get to the DNS servers or, or other aspects because of this this check. Yeah, yeah. And even if it were just the DNS servers, just the DNS servers, <laughs> it's quite a bit, right? You're not gonna you're not gonna use Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp or anything if you can't uh, use the, the DNS servers that, that support uh, those those websites or those applications. Yeah, so so do we know were they like were the DNS servers doing health checks on Facebook properties? And when the properties didn't respond, did they remove the records from DNS? Is that what happened? Or was it literally, I mean, because the routing issue was the initial cause, right? The, hmm. I, I took it to be more like what we would do um, with any cast, right? Um, when you've got a, a set of DNS servers that are all sharing in any cast address, um, you want to make sure that if, for example, one of the DNS servers croaks, you, you stop uh, advertising the route to that anycast address so that's basically how i interpreted it that that um, these servers had some sort of a mechanism whether it was anycast related or not to to pull uh, a route if they they determined that they were no longer reachable or no longer responsive so okay so i get that right like a, a there's a health check on the server itself that says all right if if, if i the authoritative server am up or rather, if, if if I go down, then I tickle BGP to withdraw my route. That I get. But then I'm just sort of wondering what was happening related to this initial cause of the outage that I guess took a bunch of data centers offline. Like well, what? The, the, you know, 30 seconds of research that <laughs> we were doing before we started the call. Uh, I'm just looking at Wikipedia now, and it said that uh, during maintenance, a command was run to assess the global backbone capacity, and that command accidentally disconnected all of Facebook's data centers. So it sounded like they they were running some sort of test. They inadvertently segmented their network. Okay. Then everything then, else uh, was so, dominoes at that point, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So Richard also mentioned in his question Slack, and Casey, I think you said you knew something about that outage. That's something that's right up your area of research. You're, you're historically known as the, the DNSSEC guy that DNSSEC is. Yes, as the, the person that's a co-author on the original uh, DNSSEC specification. Um, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> I no, think two, uh, two of the people on this call can lay claim to being DNSSEC <laughs> experts. And the, and the other one better just, I'll just be quiet. <laughs> no, no, very, very kind of you, uh, Matt. But um, yeah, so so with regard to that, the way uh, we know the DNS works with caching of records, 
And so you go, you know, ask for whatever record it is, and that record is cached in your recursive resolver so that subsequent queries for that same record will exist in cache for as long as, it, you know, the, the time to live value of that record. Um, well, DNSSEC requires a um, sort of two parts. There's a, a part at the, the child, um, we'll say uh, slack.com, and then a part at the parent, um, which is com in that case. And there's sort of this secure connection that's made uh, between the two with a, um, a, a record at the top that we call a, a delegation signer record or DS record in the parent. And then this um, some other records that we call uh, DNS key records in the child, and and so those things are securely linked using some uh, cryptographic uh, hashes and signatures. Um, well, the the presence of that delegation signer record or DS record in the parent or dot, dot com for Slack.com is what signals to a uh, recursive resolver that that um, supports DNSSEC that hey I should be expecting you know DNS keys and signatures and all this cryptographic stuff which will validate um, to to be there and and so once you see that DS record then um, that's that's the expectation that everything in Slack.com should be secure. Well, the problem was, so Slack.com um, was signed. Again, this is all from outside observation. We know that Slack.com was signed. All the DNS keys and signatures seemed to be there. The DS record was put in there and everything looked golden. And then for some reason it went away. I don't know if there was panic about some internal problem or something else, but the keys, the DS record and everything else. Well, remember back to what I said about caching, the fact that many of those recursive resolvers that had looked for that delegation signer record in the, the parent zone um, had cached that. And so um, because it was in cache, when subsequent queries uh, came to that recursive resolver looking to do uh, DNSSEC validation, they were expecting the DNS keys and the signatures and everything else that goes along with it because of that DS record still in cache. But uh, the DNS keys had, had disappeared. Um, now, I don't know the, the timing between time to live values and, you know, how long the keys remained in cache versus the DS record. But there at some point there was a mismatch for up to about 24 hours. So there was a sort of mad rush in the DNS community um, all across the world, this effort to flush from caches, explicitly flush that DS record um, so that the resolvers wouldn't think that there was supposed to be uh, DNSSEC signing below there. And the uh, effectively, the bar was lowered in terms of um, the expectation of, of cryptographic signing for Slack.com. And, and that was the large solution that was done. But, um, but it took several hours in some cases. And in some cases, actually, even where I was at, it took almost a full 24 hours to resolve um, because it just it, it went until it naturally uh, expired from cash. So the so Slack decided at some point that they just they didn't want Slack.com to be signed anymore. It it, it seems seems a little weird, but uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and of course I don't you know as an outsider I don't have any insight into you know what the decision was um, or or why that was. But again, strictly uh, speaking, strictly from the outside observation standpoint, uh, that is what happened and and, and why you know, is, is um, something that maybe they only know inter internally. I haven't looked uh, to see what sort of, you know, root cause analysis they put out to the public. Yeah. 
I mean, strictly from a for the for the interest of of our dozens of listeners who might actually want to do this at some point, they could have just removed the DS record first, right, and then waited as long as they wanted to wait because the DS record is effectively the assertion that the child zone is signed. And if they'd done that, everything would have been okay, right? Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, although it, it, I guess it sort of depends on whatever problem they were having, um, mm -hmm. because it still would have taken, you know, even if they removed the DS record explicitly, it still would have remained in cash for up to that 24 hours. What they had to determine at that point, if, you know, whatever the problem was is, can this last for up to 24 hours? Can we, can we survive for, for 24 hours? But in any case, uh, in this case, they, you know, they weren't as, they wouldn't have been as dynamic as they could have been, you know, in terms of changing things around. But in this case, there was no chance, uh, yeah. you know, for those validating resolvers, they, uh, they just, they, it wasn't there. So if, if you'd been a person affected by this running a, a recursive resolver with DNSSEC validation on, could, I guess you could have used in bind, there's like an RNDC flush name or something, I think, that, that will flush all the resource records attached to a certain name. Or maybe you could have plugged in a negative trust anchor. Would that have worked also? Yeah, I think that would have worked as well. Although I'm, I'm sort of a little fuzzy on the implementation of negative trust anchors, but I believe that's exactly the way they're designed uh, to do things. Um, is yeah, sort when of something is failing validation that, that you know is a false alarm. Yeah, yeah. We did well, that implementation for ISC, actually. <laughs> well, so can I take this opportunity to plug uh, an internet draft that uh, I'm working on that's kind of related to this? Absolutely. So uh, Rory Ahrens and I, Rory works with me at uh, at ICANN, and uh, it's, it's I, I really, I got to give credit to Rory for the idea, but uh, we've done stuff like this before. We sort of bounce stuff off each other and... Um, so it's my name. My name's on the draft, but it's 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 really Roy's baby, and it's called uh, Draft Aaron's DNS Error Reporting, and it's being uh, uh, it's going to be adopted by DNS Op, or maybe maybe it has been adopted. I should I should know these things since my name's on the draft. But basically, the idea is that a recursive resolver that encounters a DNSSEC validation failure can report it, mm -hmm. and it encodes the name that failed and what failed as a queue name. And it sends a query to uh, a reporting target that could be, you know, it could, it could, for example, be somebody that could set up just to, to do this for the internet community. And then you could have a consolidated place where all these come in and you could alert people that, hey, did you know that this is failing? Or, you know, any, you can imagine any number of uh, 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 things you could do with it. But so that would be cool. And, and we've actually got, we've been talking to uh, vendors and, and there's there's interest in, I, I'm, I'm surprised and gratified that there's interest in, in implementing it. So I'd, I'd love to see this take off. And this is I, this is addressing a, a longstanding problem, really, that, that when uh, the community designed DNSSEC didn't really do any work to extend the, the DNS response codes and, and we pretty much reused server failed for for kind of everything, right? Mm -hmm. And server fail can mean any number of things today. It can mean it can mean, oh, I'm a recursive DNS server and I tried reaching out to the authoritatives and none, none of them responded to me, or uh, it could mean uh, it, you could be talking to an authoritative DNS server that uh, is giving you a server failed response because it 
failed to load the master file that describes the zone, or it could mean a DNSSEC validation failure or any number of other things. So it sounds like this would really help us um, uh, uncover more easily the actual nature of, of uh, what went wrong, right? Yeah, and, and provide some visibility. So, yeah, so, another, yeah another, so oh, I was just going to mention another, you know, aspect of that, 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 um, you know, when we have like, for example, uh, an a, a SSL expired, um, a, a certificate, SSL certificate, uh, that is expired, you know, the, the users presented with something, you know, and, and I'm not saying <laughs> a good user should just, uh, uh, forge on through, um, but at least it gives a, a little bit more information of, as to what's going on. Whereas when you get a DNS server failure, um, it's it's sort of it's it's hard to tell. And so you know, taking it a step further, you know, if if this um, you know you're doing some error reporting in the DNS, and somehow you can extract those through some API at the stub resolver library uh, level, then you know potentially those could get back into the application, which could help make let the user make an informed decision, or at least uh, allow the application to make an informed decision. Those, those are hard things to do, um, but being a little bit more transparent at least gives a little bit more option as to what you might do. Yeah, yeah. yeah one, of the, one of the people, I had suggested during the, the Facebook outage that one of the reasons that uh, everybody thinks that these problems are DNS related is because there are a fair number of us who have sort of just enough dangerous knowledge to be able to use query tools to, to look up things with uh, against DNS servers and see that they're not responding. This person suggested that, no, it's not that at all. It's just that the browser comes back and says, DNS error, <laughs> every time that there's some sort of a failure to load, whether whether it's actually DNS or not. Once again, the web people throwing the DNS people under the bus. That is, it is so true. <laughs> all right, well, in our usual manner, I think we have exhausted the question and then some. So that being the only question in the mailbag, um, <laughs> what what else can we talk about? Well, no, actually, I'm, I, I know because we talked about it in our 60 seconds of preparation. Casey, we wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the research that you're doing as a computer science professor. That's right. And one who actually specializes in DNS stuff. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, um, as, a, as a professor and especially as a new professor, uh, you know, you, you sort of go with uh, where a lot of your strengths are, where you have some momentum and so forth. And, and of course, that's what, what has brought me to the DNS. Uh, I, I studied the DNS and um, a lot of the um, nuances of the DNS and the um, dependencies within the DNS as part of my uh, PhD. And so, of course, that, that sort of, you know, there, it gave me a lot of momentum to continue moving forward. Um, but let me, uh, I'll talk about one of the recent things that, that uh, we've, I've worked on with one of my students, um, Jacob Davis, who recently graduated uh, with his master's degree. Um, I think this this uh, particular um, idea and concept that we've come up with really has a lot of uh, potential for some impact um, with regard to um, distributed denial of service attacks. And so I'll speak a little bit about that. I'll, I'll try and you know be somewhat high level, um, but then we can dig into it as much as as much as you want. Um, but, but the general idea is that uh, the DNS historically has used this protocol, which is connectionless, you know, primarily this um, UDP transport, which basically says, hey, 
here's my message, just respond to it. Don't worry about if it's actually me or not. You have no way of, of um, sort of confirming identity. So a server, you know, a server's job is to be as efficient as possible. Take in this DNS request and push out the response as, as quickly as possible. Well, um, our servers then in, historically have become unwitting accomplices in what we uh, refer to as reflection and amplification attacks. The idea that, you know, if I'm sending a, a, a DNS request to a, a server, but I claim that that request is actually from Cricket, then the server is going to send the response to Cricket, even though Cricket didn't actually um, make the request. And so, you know, if, if this is, if there are many of me doing the same thing to many servers, then Cricket's going to get overwhelmed with all these responses for requests he didn't make. And, um, and so that, that takes him down. Um, so, so the, one of the solutions to this is this, um, identity management. There are several forms of this, um, you know, TCP has some form of identity management in the, the three-way handshake that comes because you have to exchange an initial sequence number, um, with, uh, with the server. And so they have a pretty good assurance that you are who you say you are and not, you're not just some off path, you know, um, entity that's, that's sending a, um, spoofed source packet that you will then return to this third party, which, you know, I, I mentioned before uh, with Cricket as my example. Um, so, uh, so anyway, TCP is, is one idea and there's been some research in that, um, in, you know, saying, well, let's just go with TCP. Um, that's fine. There's, there's been other technologies that have been proposed. One of them is, uh, DNS cookies, which allows you to do, um, to send a special, um, value, you know, just some sequence of, of bits basically that have to be uh, reproduced each time. So if I, I initially uh, query a DNS server and the server, uh, they say, okay, well, I haven't, you and I haven't talked before, so I'm going to send you this value, A, B, C, D, F, G, and you have to respond with that same value, whatever it was I sent you. Um, and so I, as a dutiful client, I will serve that, uh, excuse me, request, send a request to that server again and include that value, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and the server says, yep, that's the one I was expecting, so now I will send you a response. So now if I try and do that same, you know, spoofing uh, request, that reflection attack, I send something to the DNS server, and it can say, well, I had just sent you that value, and this one doesn't have it, so I'm not going to actually send that response, because, of course, the, the response that had that value went to Cricket, not to me, to the, you know, the potential victim here. Okay, so those are two solutions for, for identity management um, to help this problem um, on the internet uh, that we have with, with managing identity. And so DNS cookies and, and TCP. Here's the problem. Um, you're, you're a internet server and you have no idea who your client base is because your job is to accept uh, DNS queries from everyone and respond to them. You don't know you know, this is a, an afterthought technology, this cookies and, and TCP as a primary uh, query source, uh, query transport. So what do you do? Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a few different options. Well, maybe you can just learn what a client does. Okay, well, that's fine, except, you know, maybe you haven't heard from all clients and, and something's new. Um, and, uh, and so, um, and what about these, this example where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to keep bringing you up, Cricket, as my victim here, um, but what if I, I send a query to this the server claiming to be from Cricket, 
and you're not even a DNS server. You're just some IP address space. You know, uh, you're hosting some other services or clients or whatever. And and it like it doesn't have to actually reach you. It just has to reach your border, and and your border become overwhelmed with the amount of bandwidth that's being consumed. So so the point is, you may not be able to depend on a DNS server actually being, uh, or the victim being a DNS server. Uh, the victim is actually um, IP address space. Now. Um, I'll go a little bit further, but please uh, interject you two if you have questions that you think would be uh, valuable um, for our listeners here. So then the idea is, okay, well, what if we had some way of designating uh, the, the most appropriate secure transport for a given IP address space? And we sort of took a page out of the book of email sender identification. You know, when a, an email sender... Uh, or excuse me, an email receiver getting an email message from someone at example.com, they're going to say, okay, well, let me just check really quick uh, to make sure that this, you know, that this, uh, that the sender, the IP address that's sending this message is actually a legitimate sender for example.com. And um, so they do a DNS lookup and, and it says, okay, here's the policy for that. This is something called the sender policy framework. Um, but it effectively says, hey, these are the valid sender IP addresses for a given domain. And we thought, that's actually a really great idea. What if we could do something like that for the general IP address space in terms of this, you know, normally unauthenticated, uh, you know, DNS uh, UD over UDP protocol. And, and so the idea is a, a server that's receiving some incoming DNS request um, says, hey, all right, I got this request. I'm going to return it to you but I'm going to be more careful in the future. And what I'm going to do is a lookup on your IP address space to see if I should be expecting you to support cookies or not. And what that does is allows me to enforce the cookies because before I couldn't, I just had to support whatever, you know, whatever came to me. And so I can say, all right, this IP address space uh, supports cookies or it supports uh, DNS over TCP only if you wanted to go that route. And we talked about those two authentication mechanisms. Um, or a third one is, hey, if you get a DNS query from this IP address space, you can just drop it because this there are no DNS servers in this uh, DNS address space. Um, in the, you know, if you're familiar with the sender policy framework, this SPF, uh, this is similar to saying SPF minus all, which says you should never receive email from this domain. In like manner, you could potentially say, hey, you should never receive DNS, DNS queries from this IP address space. So what it does is it allows the victim in this case, Cricket, um, to publish something saying, hey, my IP address space um, is uh, all cookies, so you can we can verify it, or you know, maybe this subnet of my address space is uh, you know um, should support cookies. Okay. Um, so either you don't get DNS queries from here. Sorry, I, I said that backwards. Um, you uh, this, this subnet, you should support cookies if you get anything from here, or if you get something from this address space, like uh, you shouldn't, you should just drop it because I don't send queries from there. And, and so now the victim publishes this, the server respects it, and the attacker loses its ability to uh, utilize sort of um, these servers to uh, reflect um, this, this abuse, abusive traffic to our uh, to, to the victims. And so um, that's the general idea behind it. So, so Casey, it sounds like this would require uh, the authoritative DNS servers to have this additional intelligence to do this lookup. 
um, and presumably cache the results so they didn't have to look it up all that, you know, for, for every response that they were going to send. But basically to say, okay, I got a qu query from 15.0.0.1. Is that actually a, a, a IP address that should be sending me a query? And if so, what sorts of mechanisms can I expect it to, to support? Is that right? Yeah, that sounds about right. And, and my question was going to be, how is that capability advertised? I'm guessing you use DNS. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to go with what your strengths are, Matt. So um, so the idea was to actually uh, put it in the reverse DNS. And, um, sense, you know, yeah. and I know the uh, <laughs> the state of the reverse DNS is maybe not uh, as clean as it as it could be. Um, but that's typically, you know, I think that's typically not as clean for you know, if you if you're doing IP address to name mapping here, we would say, hey, uh, you know, at a subnet level, and specifically, we propose doing it at um, the slash 16 and slash 24 levels. Uh, there's more details that I won't go into here, um, so that I don't put all your listeners to sleep, um, unless they're listening at bedtime. But uh, but the idea is, uh, you put something, you know, if if this is for, you know, um, 128.187 slash 16. Um, which is BYU's address space, then we would put something in 187.128.inadder.arpa um, right at that level, some sort of record that says, hey, uh, here's our policy. Everything from our address space supports cookies. Hey, have you spec'd out the protocol? Like, is there a specific record using text records or a new record? Yeah, um, we've done sort of a half specification in the, in the academic paper that we have. The idea is to um, sort of continue working on a internet draft um, to put out that, that follows the paper and, and can also get additional community input. Um, in, the, in the paper version, yeah, we just use a text record that actually looks very similar like the SPF record, but it's, of course, specific to what we're doing here. Um, and, uh, um, and so it is a text record. I know that the DNS community doesn't love overloading text, but um, <laughs> you know, it, could be, it could really be anything, right? Uh, it could be a text-like record. Mm -hmm. um, that, that does this. It's a time-honored tradition. Yeah. <laughs> that's not into a text record. That's right. Well, that's really <laughs> slick. We'll have to be on the lookout for an ID. What do yeah. you guys call the, the mechanism, Casey? What's, do you guys have a, a, a title or a shorthand for the, for the mechanism or the protocol? Uh, yes, but you're going to make me look it up. It's called... Um, <laughs> I can it's see called... it's near and dear to your heart. <laughs> It's called DPAR, but I get a reminder what it's uh, what it stands for. Um, <laughs> it's a DNS protocol advertisement record. Oh, okay, okay. And, and yeah, it's uh, or or DPAR, DPAR. Okay. So I, I guess we could create a new DPAR record instead of a text record, but uh, you know, uh, whatever the lower bar is, really, to getting this out to the internet community to to um, help with identity management and enforcement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you said uh, that there had been some some interest among the implementers of authoritative DNS servers. Um, that's a, a great question. I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, I actually circulated this idea in some circles in the IETF uh, several years ago before we started working on it and and taking some actual measurements and getting sort of an actual specification uh, for doing this and. There was sort of varied response. Um, it, it was hard to tell. You know, there's always the question of we want to be we want to be efficient. We want to make sure. you know we want performance to be maximized, and this would slow us down. I'm sort of an optimist, and I think there's 
there's ways to still make something like this work without compromising too much performance. Um, you know, but uh, but to be quite honest, I've not you know heard an, uh, you know a response from an authoritative server vendor that says, yeah, we're in. You know, um, mm -hmm. there's some work that needs to be done, I think, to get it there. Well, the fact that it's an optimization and not required should work in your favor. Yeah, I would think. I would think. Yeah, I, I mean, I would hope so. Yeah, I the I guess the one part that that it seems like some authoritative DNS server implementers might get stuck on is that in order to answer a non-recursive query to the authoritative, you might have to initiate a recursive query, right? Yeah. And that is a, a concern. So you're saying an authoritative server would have to take on a new role that it didn't before. Um, yeah, that and the latency involved, potential latency involved in processing that recursive query. Well, and right. presumably cache it, right? Yeah. So it, it's not yep. just sending the recursive. I mean, Cricket, I know you know this. I'm just pointing out the implications of everything that comes with being a, a recursive resolver, which includes yeah. the cache and man, then managing that. Yeah. So, so here I've got, you know, the, the person wrote the book on, on DNSSEC and I've got the person that wrote the book on DNS, <laughs> but, but yeah, that is a, um, that is a concern, uh, for sure. Cricket, the, the idea that now you have to wait on this thing and, you know, in our initial proposal, we recognized that, um, we suggested that you, you, you allow some reasonable number of queries before you start enforcing it, you know, okay, you can have up to 50 queries after that you, you better show, you know, you start slowing down if we haven't gotten it. You know, there's some things to certainly work out, um, you know, both an attack model perspective, uh, you know, how does this make the server less performant or less, more, vul more vulnerable? Um, yeah. But those are sort of works in progress. And, and you, could, you could treat receipt of the first query from a new address space as a reason to go off and asynchronously do the lookup. You know, like you said, you've got some sort of a, a grace period, if you will, and a, a number of sort of responses that you'll send for free. But in the meantime, I'm going to go out and see, you know, for that address space, whether you're an authorized querier, and if so, what sort of what sort of um, mechanisms you might you might support. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, this isn't um, this isn't typical authoritative server uh, behavior for sure. Um, but but you know the, the codes around to do this parallel stuff uh, in it's for sure in the uh, recursive resolver implementation. You know maybe you say hey as an authoritative server implementing this we're actually just going to act like a stub to some we don't really want to build that into our authoritative server. Um, but you know maybe we'll just be a stub to a recursive resolver implementation. We'll bring that that cache component in, put it in some very efficient data structure uh, for quick lookups. You know and then. Um, and that's the way we implement it. I'm I'm not exactly sure. It probably depends on the, you know, the um, software uh, base that it's going into. Um, yeah. Well, I'm excited. Yeah, that's cool. Well. Well, it's great. Yeah, and we're hoping it can have a positive impact on the community, and you know, can help with this identity management aspect. Yeah, for cool. sure. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the witty banter portion of the episode. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Wherein we discussed recent media consumption. Yes. So, so what I, have you guys been reading or watching? Well, I, I, we have to start with Dune, don't we? I guess it's got so much buzz. I have not seen it yet, but because what? I, well, but because I subscribe to every single streaming service there is, because I just 
demand instant gratification and will not watch commercials, uh, I've got HBO so I can watch it. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I saw it in the in the theater and I thought it was excellent. I, it was uh, it was epic. Uh, not to not to overuse the the adjective. It was epic, and it was an epic. Wow! I'm a big I'm a big fan of the book. I've read I actually read the original trilogy plus maybe one or two. And but if you've if you've read the original trilogy, you know they sort of drop off in in um, quality. And well, here <laughs> I'm going to lose nerd points by saying that I I have not read the books. I remember trying when I was a teenager. And just couldn't get into the first one, and then never went back. But maybe it's time to do so. Yeah, yeah. I reread. I reread Dune, the first book, not not too long ago. Casey, have you have you read any of them? Oh boy, uh, I'm admitting I'm admitting my uh, sort of ignorance in this uh, science fiction category. I am. Um, I have not read Dune, nor have I seen the movie. Well, I, so now I'm just talking to myself. <laughs> All right, we will move on from Dune. Consider it uh, canon that I really enjoyed it. I recommend that, that you guys all see it, even though it is really just Dune, uh, the first half. Okay. Uh, um, but but I, I thought it was excellent. Excellent performances. And I, I get to look at Rebecca Ferguson a lot, and there's nothing bad about that. So <laughs> Now, are you watching Foundation on Apple TV? Yes. Yes. I'm, uh, gosh through the fourth episode i I guess oh i've been watching them every friday when they come out yeah so casey i'm guessing you're not watching foundation all right i I will tell you something i did watch it was not foundation okay (laughs) it was uh the wandavision i saw WandaVision. yeah 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 Yeah, wandavision was fun i was only about a year behind i think but i saw it i haven't i haven't seen that i started loki with my daughter who uh, is a, a huge MCU fan. And, and interestingly, like one of her friends got her into it. It's been a few years now, but she went from like, I have no interest in this whatsoever. I could not care less to discussing the various pluses and minuses and good things and bad things about the different movies. And and, and now is, has an exhaustive knowledge of, of the MCU. But um, where was I going with this? Oh, so uh, Loki. And and I, I have to say that one didn't that one didn't grab me. I couldn't. I only watched a couple episodes. I, either you guys watched that? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I I liked the look. It had that. The look was cool. It looked really, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I thought that the the set design, the costume design, that was that was excellent. Like and, oddly beautiful. You really got the sense that this was this yeah. this other nether world. Yeah. Um, so I really, I really enjoyed that about it. Um, I, I, I liked WandaVision a lot too. I've, I've seen, I think I've seen pretty much everything in the MCU. I'm up to date. The one thing I haven't seen is What If, the new animated series that's based on, on the MCU. But um, I like Elizabeth Olsen a lot. Um, uh, I like Paul Bettany, even though he's married to, to Jennifer. Breaks my heart. <laughs> She's off uh, the market, cricket. I know. I can't. I, it's so horrible. I mean, there is still Rebecca Ferguson. I'd better just <laughs> shut up. I, luckily, Kristen's not here. She's in Toronto, so she, she isn't hearing this, and she will not hear it. She uh, will you well, shut up about Rebecca Ferguson already? That's what she. Well, let's definitely not put this in a podcast episode that anyone in the world can listen to for yeah. free. <laughs> you think that there's any chance that she's going to listen to it? I think the chance is just about zero. Okay. Uh, yeah. How about books? Are, have you guys 
been been reading anything uh, uh, interesting? Anything worthy of uh, picking up? Yes. So I I read. Have you read the Charles Strauss, uh, the um, Merchant Princes series? You know, you've recommended yeah. uh, the series to me uh, before, and I still haven't gotten around to it. But yeah, but so it was it was originally six books, but then he had originally wanted to do them as three, so then he re refactored them into three books, and then there was a second trilogy, and that that takes place like twenty years later. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of fun because it's it's a bunch of the old characters, but then new characters you can be interested in. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so he dashed off one and two, and then left us all hanging. <laughs> and and I was just waiting and waiting and waiting for this book. Well, it turns out, I mean, it's it's a it's a sad story. His editor died, and both his parents died oh, in the gosh. in you know trying to get this book out. But he he did get it out, and so it was it was fun. It's called Invisible Sun. Is the last one in the uh -huh. uh, in the trilogy. So like, like the police song. Yes. So that was great. I, I enjoyed that. It was nice to put a put a bow on that. And then um, there's a book called Axiom's End by Lindsay Ellis. It was a debut novel. Um, it's uh, science fiction. And yeah. the uh, the sequel's out. And, and shoot, I can't remember the name of the sequel, and I'm not going to immediately see it here on the internets. But uh, but anyway, I so I, I ended up rereading Axiom's End because it's been long enough that I didn't trust my memory. And, and I don't know what your reaction is, but I more and more, and I hope it's not because my memory is failing increasingly, but I just really enjoy rereading stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've definitely, I, I, I felt like I remembered parts of Dune when I reread it, but I still had a, a really positive experience rereading it. <laughs> I well, think I this... got a lot, a lot more out of it because I read it when I was, a, the first time I read it, the only other time I read it, I was a teenager. Well, Axiom Zen came out two years ago, right? And so I, I reread that, and as I'm, I'm going, oh, this is familiar, but it's like it's not like I could have sat down and given you a plot summary or remembered yeah. characters' names or anything. So anyway, uh, so that's that. So I, I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to reading the sequel. What about you, Casey? Did you read for pleasure? Uh boy, you know, I I read to my kids. Um, I have a hard time reading to myself, believe it or not. Uh, so uh, last week in uh, my daughter's at her Halloween party, her class Halloween party, I, I read Miss Nelson is Missing. Um, and uh, yep, that's right from our, our childhood days. And uh, I just finished reading a book uh, to my kids. This one took me quite a while, but this it was called Tennis Shoes and the Feathered Serpent. Um, and it's sort of uh, um, about these young kids who have this uh, cave and, and go back in time. And, and um, um, so that's, you know, I read it out loud to them uh, over the period, sort of like as part of a bedtime routine. And, um, and that was a fun book to read. Um, but I don't do a lot of reading for myself. I guess I get the, the self part through what I, what I do reading to my kids. Huh. Uh, speaking of, um, of, time travel, the the one I'm working on now is one I, I started to read a while back and then I, I put it down and then my daughter read it and said, you really have to read this book. It's a, this is how you lose the time war. Which... That, that is in my potential reading list at Amazon and it has been for a long time and I've never pulled the trigger on it. Yeah, it's it's um, co-authored by, by, I'm looking at the cover right now because I've got Kindle open, uh, Amal El-Matar and Max Gladstone. And it's an epistolary novel, which you don't run into much, not since what, the screw tape letters and 
stuff like that. But but it's 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 very clever and very very well written, and I'm I'm enjoying it a lot. Well, well, that's what scared me away from it. The idea that it was it's so it's letters between the two characters, right? Yes. Yes, but exactly. so I, I had a hard time imagining that being interestingly enough, interesting enough to hold me for an entire book. But I, I'm guessing that the two authors actually each of them wrote one one characters oh, uh, yeah. letters. That, that that would be my guess. Um, but it's it is it is very clever. And I think I told you, Matt, that I, I read the whole all of the what do they I don't even know what that trilogy is called. The Sichin Liu uh, trilogy that starts with the three body problem and. It goes yeah. through uh, the dark forest and death sand. I read all of those, and that took forever. And I have to say, I was, I was, um, not bowled over. I, I thought eh, entertaining, but not, not great, not, not doom, not epic. Well, if there's one thing I'm going to take away from this podcast, it's that I have to go watch Dune. Yes, yes, definitely, just gorgeous. The cinematography, absolutely. Uh, amazing. Of course, how knows, who knows how much of it is actual cinematography and how much of it is uh, is is digital effects. But um, it's great. The performances are great. Fantastic cast of, of characters. Really true to the novel. Um, really a, a lot of fun. After the the horror show that was the David Lynch version <laughs> back in the <laughs> back in eighties. <the> and then I, I don't know if you guys do you guys know the the story of Jodorowsky's Dune. No. So Jodorowsky was a, a, a director who way back in, I think, the 70s decided that he wanted to make um, a movie from the book. And the book came out, I think, in the mid-60s. I think that's that's right. So it was, it was not that long after the book was published, but it was it was getting uh, a lot of fanfare. And he decided that he wanted to make this this movie. And he commissioned uh, storyboards. He had the whole thing laid out. Uh, um, he had ideas for who to cast as various characters. He had all kinds of like work done. He assembled this team of visual artists and and, and all of the rest um, to make this thing. It, he he was a little bit of a lunatic. I mean, some of the people he had in, in mind for the 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 um, characters. I think Keith Richards was supposed to be in it. Orson Welles was supposed to be the emperor. I mean, it was just nuts the sorts of people he had in mind. Well, it never got made. Uh, to make a long story short, but the the storyboards and the people, that team, they've been reused ever since then. And if you actually go look at it, uh, so one of the people, for example, on the team that he assembled was H.R. Geiger, who did almost all of the design work on Alien, which came out, you know. 1979, I think. Yeah, yeah, just a few years later. And a lot of storyboards were reused later too. There, there, there are these constant sort of rumors that that Lucas uh, pinched a lot of the ideas from the Jodorowsky Dune uh, in in Star Wars, for example. And there's a whole there's a whole movie now that's called Jodorowsky Dune, which is not Dune. It's about this failed attempt to make the movie and the the echoes of all of the creative work that they they did on the movie in other science fiction works. All right. Well, what do you think? I think that's an honest podcast episode right there. I think it is. I think it is. All right. Well, here, so here. we'd really like to thank Casey for joining us. Uh, we've discovered it's uh, these episodes are better when we have a guest and they're even easier. And that's saying <laughs> something because they're not hard to begin with. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> so hey, thank you pleasure. to Casey. 
Thanks for inviting uh, me on and letting me talk so much. And uh, as we showed, we do, if the mailbag fills up, we will we will answer the questions. So please do send us questions at uh, MrDNS, MRDNS at ask-MrDNS.com. So thanks, and until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.